This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. This is Lewis Lapham with The World in Time, speaking today with the author and science broadcaster Zaya Tong about her wonderful new book, The Reality Bubble, Blind Spots, Hidden Truths, and the Dangerous Illusions that Shape Our World. The book is wonderful, Zaya, because it is full of wonders. We don't have nearly enough time to behold them all, but perhaps you can begin by explaining what you mean when you say that all human beings live within a reality bubble. Of what sort of stupefying stuff is our bubble made? (laughs) Well, first of all, thank you so much for uh, having me join you, Lewis. Well, if we look at a bubble, I think uh, one of the best definitions that I've heard of the metaphorical bubble is that a bubble reflects a difference between a fiction that we inhabit and a larger reality. And that larger reality has a tendency to be quite dangerous. So when we think about bubbles like the stock market bubble or tech bubbles or real estate bubbles, we know that uh, they seem quite safe and quite beautiful and quite prosperous from the inside, but the problem is inevitably those bubbles do burst. And so what I was quite interested in looking at is why are people blind? Why can't they see what's coming? So I really wanted to look from within the prism of the bubble. So in order to do that, I decided to look at some of humanity's biggest blind spots. So I wanted to look at What surrounds us are biological blind spots. What sustains us, this is uh, the food and the energy and the waste that we need as a society, and even what controls us. And I call those our civilizational blind spots. Wonderful. So altogether then, yeah, yeah, so altogether then, it's... It's a way of looking at the reality that we inhabit today, because what I'm arguing in essence is this thing that we call the real world, in essence, is also a fiction. And having had an opportunity to work with many scientists over my 15 years as a science broadcaster, I started to realize that scientists have a really unique way of of seeing the world. In fact, they're able to see a lot of invisible things that you and I can't see. They're always dabbling with an invisible reality. And so using a scientific lens then, I found that I had a a new sort of pixelated portal, a new way to reveal what the real world perhaps really looked like from a scientific point of view. Yes, I think you quote Buckminster Fuller saying that if we rely simply on our own senses, we can see only a millionth part of reality. And it is the instruments that science has developed, the extensions of man, that allow us to see further. Right? 
Absolutely. That's very true. I mean, we know that we only see an absolutely tiny part of the electromagnetic spectrum. So that's really where the book starts. Uh, one of the, the very first blind spots that I decided to look at was the blind spot of scale. You know, you and I and most people, we live in a world and we have a tendency to think that everything around us is, is human-sized. But of course, we live in a doll-sized world, a dollhouse-sized world. But this didn't come to us naturally. Using our own senses, we would not have necessarily perceived that. And so looking at the early work of, uh, of a, a draper, actually named Antony van Leeuwenhoek, he was one of the very first people who sharpened his lenses, and he was looking in uh, a little bucket of rainwater one day. And inside of it, because he had developed such sharp lenses, he developed the very first microscopes that we now use. Well, uh, when is this? I mean, he's a Dutchman, 17th century, when? Yeah, exactly. This is in about the 17th century okay. in the 1600s. Okay. And uh, and so this is quite early on. And so when he when he makes this really rather remarkable discovery that he sees these little tiny creatures that are invisible to everybody else, well, the Royal Society and all the greater scientists of the day thought he was absolutely mad or that he was a charlatan. And uh, But what he had really done is he had smashed open, in essence, a portal to an entirely new reality uh, of a scale that none of us were aware of previously. And he was able to see down to the level of a micron or a millionth of a meter, the very first person to discover bacteria, the very first person to discover sperm. But on the flip side of this, there was also another man who is uh, now known as the father of science itself. And that was Galileo. And so Galileo turned his scope instead toward the heavens. And there he smashed open a much larger scale reality that uh, now we all can behold. And it revealed to us that, of course, we are also very, very, very tiny when it comes to scale in this universe. Um, he was able to shine his telescope. He aimed his telescope up at the moon and was very shocked the first time that he looked at it because... In the past, people thought that the moon was just a, a glowing, bright, beautiful, flawless orb. And when he saw it for the first time, he realized that the moon had, had craters and valleys and landforms that actually looked so much like they did right here on Earth. And of course, he reshaped so much about the way in which we think of ourselves as human beings today. We had a tendency in a past to think that we were the center of the universe. And uh, of course, he revealed uh, that this was not true, that uh, the sun does not actually revolve around us here on Earth. Um, the Earth revolves around the sun. But of course, these are things that our own raw human senses would not have been able to perceive. So these are two of the first uh, two people historically who really uh, extended our senses in a very vital way, our vision, so that we could see that in essence we are microscopic giants. We live in worlds that are much larger and much smaller than the realities that we are able to perceive. And your second chapter goes on, the next biological blind spot is what you call the mind bomb. What is the mind bomb? <laughs> I think the mind bomb, well, the mind bomb 
is really about the fact that we have a tendency to think that we are separate from everything in the world around us. You are you, I am me, we are these physical structures um, that have a lot of independence. But this, here I started really looking at science and scientific tools that show that that certainly is not necessarily the case. So with everything from the invention of x-rays that allowed us, to, which were spectacular at the time, you know, I think we take x-rays for granted today, but I remember even, you know, in the old comic books when you would see the ability to have x-ray vision and the fact that we have these machines that can see through bodies, um, you know, can see right through our skin. This was magnificent at the time when it was very first discovered. People used to line up and, and at fun fairs, they used to go and get bone portraits done of themselves because they, they had this ability to see their skeletons for the first time, right? Yes, that's the 1880, 1880s? Exactly. Okay. Around that time, right around the 1800s, uh, yeah, the late 1800s, and at the same time, women, uh, you know, a lot of women were, were binding themselves in corsets. And it was only with the invention of the x-ray that we were able to see that uh, a lot of these women actually had their bones crushed on the inside of the clothes that they were wearing. And so this is because we started realizing that human bodies, you could actually penetrate them. There were rays, these x-rays that were able to see through our bodies. In essence, our bodies are really quite porous. So I really wanted to look a little bit deeper into that because we have newer tools today that suggest much the same thing, but they can look on scales that are larger than just the human body. They can also look at the planetary body. And so for, for this, I was fascinated by a lot of the work that's being done right now with neutrinos because there's something like 100 trillion tr neutrinos passing through our bodies uh, every second of every single day. So to neutrinos, we're almost like ghosts. We're absolutely these porous, invisible, sort of like sieve-like beings, if you might think of it that way. Uh, there's an absolute interchange of all these subatomic particles that are passing through us that we can't see. And I came across a story that I just found so fascinating. And uh, it's actually, it's, it's a place called the Super Kamiokande Laboratory in Japan, the Super K. And this is a lab that is deep inside of a mountain. And inside of this mountain, they have this, this lab deep within it, about a mile inside of it, almost like a James Bond laboratory, where they detect neutrinos from inside of the mountain. Because, of course, these neutrinos can shoot right through us. They can shoot, actually, just as a side note, through nine and a half trillion kilometers of lead. <laughs> they can get through just about anything. And... What was spectacular is these folks decided to do something remarkable. They decided from inside of a mountain that they wanted to take a photograph of the sun. And, you know, how are you going to take a photograph of the sun when, you know, you have no lights, you're inside of a mountain and there's no windows? Well, because they're not looking for photons, they're looking for neutrinos, they developed um, something which I would say is akin to a high-tech camera, although it's technically a lot more complicated than that, to detect these neutrinos. So when the neutrinos are passing through these subatomic particles, 
they have uh, no mass. They move incredibly quickly, and they have no electric charge. So they can just zip through most things. But because there are so many trillions of these, these neutrinos passing through our planet at every, any given moment, what they created is, was, is a lab with um, a huge tank of ultra-pure water. And the idea is every once in a while, every once in a while, maybe about 10 neutrinos a day will kind of almost like um, almost like pool or snooker will hit another electron from one of from a molecule of ultra pure water and this will create sort of like um, a minute miniature sonic boom that lights up into a blue a blue glow so taking all of these blue glows over a period of several hundred days they were able to create a very long exposure of these neutrinos coming in. And in doing so, what I think is uh, just remarkable is they were able to take a photograph of the sun outside, of the beaming, bright, orange, red, flaming sun outside from inside of a mountain using just the images of these neutrinos. And the point of all of this is that we are incredibly porous beings. And this idea that there is some sort of an environment that exists outside of us actually isn't quite true. And the reason I wanted to make that point quite early in the book is because we live in a world where we're constantly referring to this thing called the environment as if it is somehow separate from us, but it absolutely isn't. And more and more with science, what we're discovering is that the outside world, if we're not careful, especially with things like pollution, has a remarkable way of being able to find its way back into our own bodies itself. That's a magnificent insight. Go f- Go then to your next chapter, which you call I to I. Yes, so here is uh, another blind spot that we have. And, and this one, if the first one is about how we see ourselves as the center of the universe, and the second one is the blind spot that we don't see that we're connected to everything, the third one is really about sort of speciesism, if I might call it that. It's the notion that we seem to be the most remarkable species on Earth. But of course, we know that there are at least at least 8.7 million other species. Most scientists suggest that that number is a lot higher than that. And so I was really quite curious to see well, we think we see the world in one particular way, but just as Buckminster Fuller mentioned that we only see a tiny sliver of the electromagnetic spectrum, well, what are all these other remarkable evolutionary biological machines? How have they, how have they evolved to see the world differently? And, and they do see the world remarkably differently. Um, I go through so many different examples in the book. But one example would be if you've ever had a chance to look online and see these marvelous photos of ultraviolet, uh, photos of flowers photographed in ultraviolet, and they almost sparkle like they have miniature universes inside them, um, and and they look like just fairyland photos. At the same time, a lot of them have uh, targets that only bees can see. So bees can see in ultraviolet. We know that certain raptors can see in ultraviolet. There's some suggestion that some, that some eagles are able to hunt simply by seeing the glow of urine trails of rodents that are running off in the distance, which is really quite incredible. 
At the same time, on the other end of the spectrum, when we're looking at something like infrared, um, there, snakes, of course, are naturally able to see in that way. By see, I mean they have something called a pit organ. Vipers have a pit organ that is able to sense heat. And so you can actually blindfold snakes, and they can accurately strike a target like a little mouse, for example, because they're, be, they're able to detect that heat inside of a room, even without using their own eyes. And human beings, of course, scientists and, and technologists have uh, been paying attention to a lot of these abilities that animals have because we have shaped a lot of our own tools and technology after uh, some of those abilities as well. And I'm not sure if you remember how the Boston Marathoner, uh, the, the bomber, was caught, but he was hiding inside of a boat. And, of course, it was using uh, infrared technology that they were able to, um, you know, fly overhead and shine uh, this light into the neighborhoods and actually see this warm body hiding underneath the tarp of a boat that to the average eye and to the average person, of course, would have been absolutely invisible. Before we go on to the next one, talk about maybe... The chimpanzee who lives at the Primate Institute in Kyoto and prairie dogs. <laughs> okay. Um, so, in terms of, are you are you wondering about the are you wondering about the one who can subtize, the one who can who can see very very quickly all the very different numbers yes, on the yes. screen? The one with an eidetic memory. Believe, yeah. The one with I believe that is Ayumu. Yeah. That is Ayumu. And so. Yeah, so uh, remarkable because we know that uh, chimpanzees have abilities to see quite quite a bit better than than we can in a certain way. They're able to do something that's called subtizing, subitizing, and subitizing in essence is uh, a lot like when you and I look at rolled dice. Um, we can instantly see that it's a number seven uh, with you know let's say a five and a two without having to count all the dots. Well, chimpanzees can do that, but they can see a lot more dots. Uh, they could see, uh, in another way, put it in another way, a lot more dice at, at one time. So scientists and researchers have been working with um, Ayumu, who has really a photographic memory. He's better than other chimpanzees, way better than other human beings at doing these sorts of things. And you can flash a whole bunch of numbers on a screen. So if you picture a blank screen on a computer, and you picture, it's a game that they play with them, you picture different um, numbers showing up in various um, various spots on the screen, different ones each time. Uh, so let's say a 1 would be in the left-hand corner, or a 14 would on, be on the bottom right, and they show up for just a fraction of a second. And then the, the task is to be able to say which number was in which location in order and do it very, very quickly. Well, Ayumu can do this faster than any human being can do this. And in fact, even compared to some human memory champions, champions who are able to memorize a whole set of cards or a whole deck of cards and moments, um, you know, Ayumu beats them with no problem because his vision, his eidetic and photographic uh, visual memory is so spectacular. And the prairie dogs. Talk about the prairie dogs. <laughs> <laughs> the prairie dogs, the prairie dogs, I just, I love the prairie dog story so much. And I think that it was something that I found that, um, that shook me personally quite a bit. And it's, it's the, the work of a, of a man named Dr. Konshlobachikov. And he studies prairie dog language. And, um, one of the, 
one of the things that he realized is that prairie dogs have different, um, they have different alarm calls for different predators. And we know that about quite a different spe- few different species. So if a prairie dog sees, for example, an eagle up in the sky, it'll, it'll bark. Arr, forgive my not very good prairie dog impersonation there. But if it sees a, a dog on the ground, it'll also bark Arr, or human. Arr. Now, the thing is, to our ears, of course, we can't decipher the difference between prairie dog barks. But the remarkable thing about having a computer these days is we can see the difference. And this was his real genius insight, was once he actually uh, sort of printed out the sound visually, he created these sonograms and he realized that the prairie dogs were not barking in the same way. What sounded to us like the same bark was actually remarkably different. So there were different barks for different, different animal species. But what was even more remarkable was then he would do things like show the prairie dog colonies unusual symbols, things like circles or squares or triangles that they had never seen before. And again, the prairie dogs would have these unique barks for, for, for these different shapes. Then he took it even further and realized that these prairie dogs had different barks for different colors. So he was even, he was cracking a sort of uh, prairie dog Rosetta Stone, if we could put it this way. And one of the most incredible studies that he did was when he sent in um, his grad students through a prairie dog colony. Now he knew that there were, um, he'd already decoded these different, um, these different barks for shapes and sizes and sounds. So he sent in uh, a, a human, which there's a bark for, and uh, he would have them just the same person but wearing a different colored T-shirt each time they, they would walk through the prairie dog colony. And the prairie dogs would bark when one would walk through tall, thin, human, wearing green. Change the color of the shirt, tall, thin, human, wearing blue. And this, I have to tell you, Lewis, just blew my mind. It blows my mind. <laughs> yeah, in their own primitive way, Prairie dogs are talking. Surely they aren't having large-scale philosophical conversations, not that we know of anyway, but they are describing their world around us. And we were able to figure this out by really having a better understanding of what prairie dogs could say and what they could see. I I truly love this book. I mean, I I could go on and on. I mean, I listened to you for a very long time, but let's let's go to the next one, which is recipe... For disaster. I mean, we are now in the, we're moving on to the second uh, category, right? The the uh, societal blind spots. Yes, absolutely. So what inspired this section of the book, the societal blind spots, the blind spots that sustain us, is um, I had a, a bit of a shower thought one day, and it was this. It's, it's the notion that in the 21st century, I think we all know that there are cameras everywhere. But there are cameras everywhere except where our food comes from, where our energy comes from, and where our waste goes. And I just thought, gosh, that is so peculiar that here we are, we think we're the most powerful species on Earth, and we seem to be... <laughs> We seem to be a little bit oblivious when it comes to how we survive. And I came across a, a study that I talk about just in the very beginning of the book, uh, a survey that was conducted in England. So the thing that really struck me is the fact that um, in the UK, one in three young adults don't know that eggs come from chickens, 
and a third of kids thought that cheese comes from plants, and 40% of young people had no idea that milk comes from cows. So this is really rather stunning. I mean, we know that a lot of people stop at the supermarket and they don't think much further as to where their food comes from. But I wanted to start to do a deep dive into that and, and see what could be revealed, what was hidden that, that we needed to learn more about, because um, there's obviously so much <laughs> that goes on beyond those supermarket doors. You talk about the suffering of which we would rather spare ourselves the sight. Things we know we'd rather not know. And then you begin with this wonderful, on an autopsy table, the dissection of a chicken nugget. <laughs> you want to explain? You know, I mean, what does the dissection sure. of, a, of a chicken nugget reveal? Well, gosh, the... The, check it, the dissection of a chicken nugget reveals a few things. I mean, the very first thing is that these scientists were really interested in looking at obesity rates and why they're increasing. And so they looked at what is inside of a chicken nugget. And I think you're going to have to read the book to, to learn yeah. more of what is inside yeah. there. Okay. But a lot of it really isn't really what most people think. A lot of it is a, a just sort of a, a shaken off sort of goo. It's sort of this striated muscle. But the reason I use that example is because I was quite curious as to how and when animals turned from, from full living creatures and animals that we could recognize into this sort of batter and paste that, that, that we now call chicken nuggets or that are little chicken dinosaurs or little stars or what have you. We've transformed the natural world in such a way to make it perhaps more palatable to us. But in doing so, we disguise a lot as well. And so what we are disguising is, of course, the horrors of our own food production system. A lot of people don't like thinking about these things. Uh, I know that a lot of people are quite well aware of them. But I also started to wonder, you know, how is it that we are now outnumbered by our domesticated uh, animals 15 to 1 in terms of wild animal species to domesticated animal species. But at the same time, here we have billions and billions of animals. I think one estimate is that we slaughter 66 billion animals every single year. And this isn't even including the fish that we are fishing from the fisheries. And yet, how is it then that all of these animals seem to magically disappear? You know what I mean? You would think that they would be absolutely everywhere, but, um, but they disappear in some pretty, pretty, um, well, horrific ways. Really, a lot of them disappear through the process of rendering. And so that's something I talk about a little bit in the book as well, is that originally, um, originally animals were sold uh, as whole animals, but then it, it, it came to pass that there was an, a more efficient way to sell animals um, and their products, meat products, by rail if you didn't have to have their whole bones, their bodies, their brains, and their hoofs. And so that's when we really started developing things like bacon and chops and stews was to kind of get rid of some of those heavier parts of the body. But then those heavier parts of the body um, started being used in a whole range of other um, products that we have today, everything from cement to bullets to paint thinner to, um, yeah, a whole range of different products that we have 
that we use daily that we don't even necessarily think about that all have these animal remains within them. So it was really about the disappearance of, of domesticated animals, but at the same time, the, the disappearance of the wild animals that they have replaced. And so our meat, for example, also becomes uh, adulterated with other, uh, I, I don't know what you, other substances. So if we, if we turn our own meat into uh, garbage, we are putting that into our own bodies. Well, in many ways, yes. I mean, uh, I, I think that I think that one of the most dangerous things that we're putting into animals, of course, and I think most people would agree, is really antibiotics. That is uh, not something that I go into in the book in particular, but I think that pumping animals full of antibiotics right now is one of the things that scientists are most deeply concerned about, especially in times when we see all those uh, the, the hog swine pools with all that antibiotic waste that goes into them. And every single time we have the floodwaters rising, all of those antibiotics enter our very own uh, our own water streams. And then we have situations like now and. And I had a friend who had to contend with this, so it actually strikes home a little bit. Her son was most recently in the hospital, and while he didn't have MERS, he didn't have a situation where he had a, an, a bacterial infection that was resistant to all drugs, it was resistant already to quite a few. And so this is certainly one of the great dangers of our food system that we have to pay a lot more attention to. That said, though, of course, the IPCC report, the Intergovernmental Panel uh, report, the climate change report just came out today, and this is a report issued by the United Nations. And it, they're, they're making it just very, very clear that um, we have a tendency to think that a lot of our, our problems with climate change stem only from um, auto, the automotive industry or transport or electricity, but a full quarter of it also comes from, from agriculture and especially from animal agriculture. So invisibly, of course, all these cows and all these sheep are releasing methane through their, their burps, through their rumens as they're digesting. And methane is 30 times more powerful, a greenhouse gas and carbon dioxide. And so, you know, this is all invisibly going up into the atmosphere and trapping heat and creating the situation that we're seeing, I think, all over the world right now, which is pretty intense global warming. So one of the best things that we can do is really reduce uh, the consumption of meat because that is one of the fastest ways that we can reduce methane. And uh, one of the most effective, effective measures right now we have to combat climate change. All right. right, I'm going to skip one chapter and, and go to because it connects to trash and treasure because that's sure. another that's another way we we are polluting our 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 own environment and our own bodies i mean we you talk about 29,000 pieces of space junk in orbit around the earth and junk being dumped into the ocean and uh, you know, for every 150 kilograms of product on the shelves, there's another 3,000 kilograms of waste in the manufacturing process. I mean... Absolutely. So, I mean, and, you know, it, 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 this goes on to human waste as well. I mean, what do we do with it? That's it. I mean, 
human beings out of sight, out of mind. You know, we like to flush the toilet, you know, throw stuff in the bin, and we don't really think of where all of this stuff goes. And I did start off the chapter by looking at the moon junk we have up there. You know, most people yeah. don't know that there's 96 bags of, of vomit and feces and, and magazines and shovels. There's all sorts. There's tonnage in terms of waste that we've left up on the moon. And yes, as you mentioned, there's a place in the middle of the ocean that very few people know about called Point Nemo. And that's where a lot of our space garbage goes. There's even space stations. There's a, you know, there's a um, rocket ships from Russia that are sitting at the very bottom of the ocean. Those things are out of sight and out of mind. And uh, a lot of that stuff we can't see, which is remarkable. Scientists are now, of course, very, very concerned about the swirling mass of space junk that we have that makes our own planet sort of look like a, a pig pen in our own solar system. It's just swirling with waste. Again, this we can't see. But what's starting to happen, of course, is a lot of this waste is starting to catch up on us now. We know that places like China have begun to turn away our waste, and uh, they're saying no more. And so, uh, you know, piles and piles of what we thought was recycling is now stuck within our own borders with nowhere to go. So it's actually really rather tremendous, the story of waste and and uh, how it is dealt with is actually really fascinating. So as, you're right. I actually go not just into garbage and, and that kind of waste and technological waste, but of course the story of human waste as well and uh, how important and how vital uh, that kind of waste once was. So feces, of course, um, was one of the most <laughs> one of the most valued things in history, and um, it was what fertilized our lands. In fact, human feces and animal feces is one of the reasons that in China they had such magnificent soil for thousands and thousands of years. And so I go into the story of not only human waste, but uh, the story of of bird of bird guano and basically how bird guano in effect changed the face of our planet. We 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 had a system that allowed us to fertilize our our fields and our farms and this was with the discovery that bird guano in a in a place called the Chincha Islands in Peru was incredibly, incredibly, uh, it was just a, a wonderful fertilizer. So there was a real bonanza and gold mine, uh, that sort of, that sort of took place there. People were, were pillaging these islands because basically the islands were skyscrapers tall filled with this very, very, very precious guano. But the story that I tell is what happens when that guano started running out. And the scientists who thought they were coming to the rescue to try and save humankind, to provide a new way for us to be able to fertilize our soil and for us to be able to feed ourselves. But the story, uh, without giving too much away, ends up getting us in a whole lot of trouble. And it is, in fact, the reason why today we have a population that has skyrocketed, a population that went from a billion people on Earth to over 7.7 billion in just a little more than a century. Yeah. Okay. Let's go to civilizational blind spots. I mean, and you talk about, let's just talk about a couple of them, though. You talk about time lords, in other words, and space invaders, and, and 
the point being that we, we, we live really in an artificial world. We live in a world made by machines or made, made in our own minds in accordance with machines. Uh, maybe I'm not getting it right, but see if you can put together the, the three uh, subheads in civilizational... Uh, blind spots. Blind spots, yeah. Most certainly. So I think this is the thing, again, this notion of the bubble and the notion of what is fiction and what is reality. And I was fascinated by really the most basic uh, substance that we inhabit. I wouldn't necessarily call it a substance, but I'd call them our dimensions. And it's the dimensions of time and space. And, you know, you've heard it said many times, you know, what does a fish know of the water in which it swims, right? And the, the water in which we swim in are these dimensions, time and space. What they're, they're more fundamental to anything than, that we could imagine. Uh, we require time orders absolutely everything about the way in which we live our lives. And space orders everything about the way in which we are able to move through the world. But when you start looking a little deeper into it, you start realizing, wow, how did we come up with these structures of time and space that we live within? And perhaps there's a reason why this book has been compared to the movie The Matrix. <laughs> and it's because when Morpheus ends up handing Neo that red pill, he asks him if he wants to see the world in a different way, because what he reveals to him is that we live in a world, a, a sort of prison of the mind. And what I argue in these chapters about what controls us as a human species is that we have constructed these, um, these measures um, that, that really have sort of trapped us in a way. I mean, the most simple way for us to think about it is the fact that you know, all of us move about our days in a very orderly way. You've got billions of primates getting into their cars nine to five. You know, they only have two days off a, a week. They have to work 50 weeks a year. And, and very few people stop to ask, when did things get to be this way? And how did they get to be this way? And who are the people who have actually changed that system in the past? And of course, there have been quite a few uh, cage rattlers who have made, uh, who have made some big changes to the way that we understand time and space. And to uh, and it's tricky because I think you know, Lewis, how much I cover in the book. So I think yeah, that you yeah. know, we're trying to condense some pretty yeah. pretty big topics here. Yeah, I know. But, but I, to be to be brief if I could, um, and I, I hope the listeners forgive me for not being brief here. But, you know, for, for ages and ages, the way in which we perceived the world was based on our own, um, our own sort of, we, we, we measured the world with bodies. I think that's probably the simplest way to put it. Uh, the world around us, we measured with human bodies, um, whether it's, you know, measuring in feet or, or the ulna. A lot of people measured sort of from an arm's length. And the way we measure time was, was also with bodies, with the passage of solar bodies, planetary bodies, or with clepsydras, for example, um, you know, how, how water moved through a, a small opening, a, a little bit like uh, the way we have those hourglasses with sand passing through. It's always a, a body moving from, from one position to another position. That's how we told time. Today, of course, we live in an incredibly abstract world, and we've really 
abstracted both time and space. And, and I have a couple examples here, and uh, I certainly wrote them down because there was no way I was going to be able to remember this. But if you think about what a second is now today, a second is defined as the duration of 9,192,631,770 periods of the radiation corresponding to the transition between the two hyperfine levels of the ground state of the cesium-133 atom. <laughs> now, that's a second. Yeah. But at the same time, a meter today is the length of the path traveled by light in vacuum during a time interval of 1... Uh, 200, 909,792,458 of a second. So what I became interested in is why did we start abstracting these measures of time and space? And what did it mean for human beings once these measures became so abstracted that they could only be perceived by humans and uh, by machines and not by human beings ourse ourselves. And what I started to realize is that this is where the machine world starts to overtake us because here we're starting to be governed by a world that only machines can perceive, but we ourselves as human beings cannot. And we are starting to get trapped by the measures of our own making. And that is only, of course, just the, um, the gentlest approach in to what, what it means to be in the prisons of time and space. Because, of course, as we go further into those chapters, we start to realize that time can become oppress incredibly oppressive for certain peoples around the world. It can be used against people in certain ways, right? right. Um, at the same time, you know, there are people like Dalits in India, the people who, who work for something like, I don't know, maybe about eight or 10 cents a day, you know, whereas there are Amazon billionaires who are making, you know, millions of dollars in their sleep every single hour. At the same time, once we start constricting space, we start to see some really um, strange developments as well. And there's, we're, we're leaping ahead a little bit, but I hope that no, uh, no, your go ahead and leap. That. Leap, by all yeah, means, so, leap. Okay. <laughs> but I mean, I, I grew up in a place called Hong Kong, and uh, Hong Kong, as many people know, is one of the densest environments in uh, densest cities in the world. And I remember going in and seeing um, the, the cage people and seeing the people who live in, in homes that they have to pay, still, they have to pay pretty, pretty large-scale rents for that are the size of prison cells. And uh, so the question of those two chapters really is how did this come to be? How did we get to a point where we started paying to imprison ourselves? How did we create the rat race? Yes, and it, but it is our own creation, and, and that is our reality bubble is the rat race. It is the prison of yeah. our own mind, right? I mean, it's... Yes, it, absolutely. Uh, okay, so... Let us go to the end, then, and finish with, with your chapter, Revolution, which is the, we have to find a new way of thinking in, in order mm. to, I mean, we have to somehow cure some of our blindness. We have to learn how to see uh, in order to uh, really save the world from being destroyed by machines. <laughs> 
Well, we're in a heck of a heck of a lot of trouble. That's for sure. And uh, that was the remarkable thing about working with scientists is, is is I started seeing this world and this pixelated view of these blind spots started to reveal a much bigger picture for me because all of these different scientists, whether they're working in hydrology or geology or working in biology, working with animals, they're they're all able to kind of give you a glimpse into what is happening in this world and. I think right now we're we're certainly living in a very dangerous time, but we're also living in a time that gives us a tremendous uh, amount of opportunity. Um, science and scientists are the reason that that we've been able to progress as much as we have. Um, you know, when we look at the people that we first started talking about in our conversation today, Galileo or Van Leeuwenhoek, they shattered these 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 windows to, to new realities that allowed us to see. The same could be said of many other great scientists, whether it's, um, you know, Einstein, for example, who overturned a lot of the Newtonian thinking that we had in the past and, and many, many more. So I do think that what's wonderful about the fact that we live in a hyper-connected um, society right now with the Internet is that we're able to communicate with each other at the speed of light for the very, very first time. We're seeing the very first generation being born into this internet, that if they're able to see and they're able to communicate their ideas quickly enough, then I think we have uh, a bit more of a fighting chance. The other thing is, there are a lot of different solutions that we're starting to see. When I was working at the Discovery Channel, I would almost, I'd be featuring, featuring one of these solutions, or several of these solutions, to be honest, every single day. It was almost like they were unclaimed lottery tickets. There are plenty of solutions that we have to the problems. What we're lacking really is a, a cohesive storyline, a cohesive story so that people can, can see how all of these problems interconnect and intersect. What we need the average person to understand right now, I would argue, is the big picture. That, for me, is the start of revolutionary thinking. That is also the substance of your very wonderful book. So thank you for speaking with us today, Zaya Tong. I enjoyed the conversation. It's been a true pleasure. Thank you. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.